Hi, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. Today's episode features a spoken message from the book of Ephesians. The message is called God's Masterpiece, and it is number 23 of the masterclass entitled Untraceable Riches, Ephesians in 3D. And there are 36 messages on Ephesians in that masterclass. And you can listen to a few other messages in that masterclass on this podcast that have been published in the past. But if you're interested in getting all 36 messages, the entire masterclass, which also includes a number of supplemental articles and digital handouts, just go to thedeeperchristianlife.com, join the waitlist, and you will be sent an email when it opens again. Ephesians in 3D is just one of the masterclasses. There are many other masterclasses on the network that are available by becoming part of it. Here it is, God's Masterpiece, Part 23 of Ephesians in 3D. Enjoy. I'm going to read the passage out of two versions. Actually, I'm going to probably ask someone else to read it out of the second version. But the first version is the New American. And we are in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, if you have a Bible that you mark in, then you want to mark some things down here. If not, just take note of these words. The word here I would love for you to circle is were. You were And then the word dead, underline it. You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formally walked. Just circle those two words, formally walked. According to the course of this world. The course of this world you want to underline. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the people who he's addressing, he is making clear that they are not the sons of disobedience. That's good news. Brothers and sisters, you are not the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among them, we too all formally lived you want to circle formally lived in the lusts of our flesh. And you want to underline the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were, circle were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, those three verses are the most negative verses in all of Ephesians. Everything else in this letter is not only positive, it's marvelous. We spent six months in the first chapter. In Ephesians 1, everything is from God's viewpoint. Everything is from the heavenlies. Everything starts out from God's dream and God's intention and how he sees us. But now he shifts gears and he's coming down to earth, to space-time, and what we look like and what we were when we came out of the womb in the flesh, in the natural. So those are the most negative uh, passages in this whole letter, and we are going to deal with them. Okay, now verse 4, but God. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Amen. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay, now, I want someone who has a good clear voice and has the ability to read, to uh, read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 out of the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ. Amen. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Mm. But we are God's masterpiece. Mm. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we Mm. can do good things He planned for us long ago. Okay. I wanted us to do something, but we're not going to do it this afternoon. But what I wanted to do, and I guess I'll give this to you as an assignment for you to do when you're alone sometime or with a brother or sister, and maybe even do this as I'm thinking about it in your next uh, brother's meeting and do it in your next sister's meeting when you get together. So somebody write that down because you will forget. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verse by verse, and appoint someone in the room to count the number of times you find a statement where you are told to do something. Yeah, chapter 1, just chapter 1. So, okay, we get together. I'm going to read the verses you count. Every time I come to a verse where God's people, the people who Paul wrote to, are addressed to some obligation, some duty, some command, something they have to do, you're going to count. Now, does anybody want to venture a guess as to what the number will be? Zero. Ephesians 1 is 
the highest, most sublime passage in all the New Testament. It is a marvelous revelation, and it is all about what God has already done for you and I in Christ. And you cannot be a legalist in the face of that. But I wish every minister on the planet would begin where Paul began when he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, he began in the heavenlies by showing them how God in reality sees them by showing them who they are together in Christ and boy that would change everything if we had that today we begin there we build there we start there God's view and Ephesians is full of absolutes this is the way it is this is the way it was this is the way it will be you are basically inactive in that whole passage you're being showered by the riches of his grace and if that passage if it is preached with revelation and anointing does not open your eyes to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and the greatness of who you are in him then you're hopeless nothing will because you cannot get beyond that passage that's why we spent six months in it we found out that we are holy and blameless in his sight. And I made a comment last time I was with you, and I want to repeat it. This is only positional truth if you do not have eyes to see. God doesn't look at this as positional. This is real. We are in Christ. I cannot possibly review chapter 1, but I want you to do this little assignment. You go through and you find any words of, I must... I have to, I better, I need, and uh, that whole passage will wipe that off the table. And we begin in a position of who we already are in Christ. The other point I want to make, this is a point that is so lost to the present Christian mind. This whole letter is not written to an individual. My dear brothers and sisters, this letter is not for you. The individual Christian. This letter was written by a man who had in his mind the corporate nature of God and the corporate nature of the church. The Christian life is a plural experience. It is an experience with a body of believers that you are knitted together with and you're living out the Christian life with in close quarters. Now this is mostly lost today because we have something different on the planet. Everything's to you, the individual. So I want you to keep this in mind as we read this letter. Remember, this is to a people, a body of believers. And consequently, when we're sharing on it and we're speaking on it, we have this in our mindset. This applies just as much to the church as it does to the brothers and sisters in the churches in Asia Minor who Paul wrote it to. But our tendency is just to take it individualistically. It has an individualistic element, but it's really to a people. So take it as such. See yourselves with your brothers and sisters, and this is to us, okay? Instead of to me, an individual Christian. You won't get very far in your Christian life if you live as an individual Christian. It's meant to be lived out by a body of believers. It's very plural in nature. Okay, those are the two points I wanted to make about chapter one. I wish I could review it, but uh, that'd be impossible. After Paul tells the churches about their place in Christ and how God sees them. 
he then talks about how things look, or I should say how they looked in space-time. He comes down to the earth, and he looks at us and describes us before we met Christ and had that collision with him and what we appeared in the eyes of God as we were walking on the earth. Now, this is a little bit difficult to describe because our origin really is not of this earth. Our beginning is not on this earth when we were born. Our beginning, where is our beginning? Somebody answer that question. Where was our beginning? Where do we start? In Christ, before time, chosen in Him. But when we made it on the planet, there was a condition that we all found ourselves in, and he describes it. And I want you to know, he paints the most drastic picture that can be painted about what we were before the choosing before creation caught up to us. And the Lord found us in space-time and brought us back to where we originally were. He paints a drastic picture. So I'd like us to uh, read this in that light, these first three verses. First of all, he says that we were dead. And I want to say a word about the book of Romans. If you open up the book of Romans, you find that Paul begins with man's condition, his sinful condition. And there man is a sinner, human beings, men and women. We're sinners in need of forgiveness and justification. And the whole book of Romans begins in our pitiful condition, begins there. We're sinners, we're justified, we're forgiven, we're made saints, and then we're put in the body of Christ. Well, Ephesians doesn't begin there. Ephesians begins in the heavenlies, we're in Christ, we're perfect. Then we come to space-time. We're not sinners, we're dead. And God comes along and then makes us alive. And then we're added to the body of Christ to fulfill his intention, his kind intention. Dead in trespasses and sins, and then we're walking. So we have dead people walking, which is interesting. And in the Greek, this word walk means meander. You have no purpose. You are walking in an aimless path. But there's something else. Something, as you're walking, as you're dead, as we were, Something is carrying you. We were walking according to, and that word according to, it appears often in Ephesians, means controlled by or dominated by. So we were formerly walking controlled by the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. And then he goes on in verse 3, and also... You were formerly living in the lusts of your flesh, doing by nature what the children of wrath do. Okay, so I want to paint a picture here. I'm using Paul's words to do it. Imagine a mighty, long, winding river. That river is moving according to a certain course. Anything that falls into it is being propelled and pulled by the current. Now imagine a tree loses a leaf, a very large leaf. The leaf is dead, so it falls off the tree. It falls into that river. That leaf is being carried by the current and the trend and the pull of that mighty river. 
And where is that river leading? It's leading off a waterfall. And anything that's in its way, it ends in destruction. Now the leaf is dead. It has no power to swim against the current. And their brothers and sisters, this is you and me before we met him and he intervened. We were like that dead leaf with no power at all to go against the current. Now you might be able to see fish in that river swimming against the current, but they're alive. But if you're dead, you're helpless and hopeless. There's no way you can get out. And brothers and sisters, this world, this world system, and the world is a system, it has a tremendous pulling power. And before he appeared, we were dead like a leaf off a tree in that river, and there was no way to get out of it. We were pitted against something much more powerful than us. But that's not all. Let's say we could get out of it. We can't because we're dead. The air around us is controlled by somebody called the prince of the power of the air. Any idea who that is? That's Satan. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He is in the air and he was controlling you and me. Whether you realize it or not, he was controlling us. Now here's the interesting thing. Some people who are in the world who do not know Jesus Christ and have not met him appear to be very good people. And some religions... If you ever take a class called comparative religion, there is an awful lot of religions that are morally based. But dear brothers and sisters, listen carefully. Those are tributaries in that river. They all lead to the same place. It's death. So both pagans and Jews in the first century were being carried and pulled on this river. And so were you and I. But there's also the prince of the power of the air. Spirits under Satan were actually influencing human behavior because he controls the world system. And anybody who's being carried by the world system is being controlled by him. But if that isn't dark enough for you, just for good dark measure, there's one other thing. Not only were we surrounded by this current of the world pulling us, not only did the air itself control us because the prince of the power of the air was influencing us at that time. But even within our members, (laughs) inside us, we're being controlled by a power called the flesh. Sin is nothing more than the nature of God's enemy. Sin is the nature of Satan. And at bottom, it is selfishness, period, and rebellion. And death is separation. Death is separation from God. So here we were. Terrible, awful condition. Beyond hope. Helpless. Hopeless. You know, it really takes eyes to see our condition before grace. I mean, it really takes revelation because we, I mean, we think of ourselves as, you know, good people. We're human beings. But Paul paints this image And in verse 4, he says something that, to me, fills the universe. Two words. But God. 
Praise the Lord. But God, here it is, this horrible picture. And then, but God. And we're introduced to the riches of his mercy. Now, do any of you remember the difference between mercy and grace? Did that stick in anybody's mind? Okay, well, if you do, go ahead and tell us what it is. This is given something we don't deserve, mm-hmm. and mercy is the abstaining of something we do. Yes. We need mercy and grace before and after. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm in daily need of grace. No, I do know about you. You are in daily need of grace, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you will most clearly see your need for grace when you are thrown together with a group of fallen believers like this seeking to live as a community of Christians you will be forced to lay hold of the grace of God alright now and by the way this is God's design because his desire as we will see is to display riches of his grace it's a great place in the church for that to happen mercy is withholding from you what you deserve and grace is giving to you what you don't deserve what did we deserve we deserve judgment mercy came in and took it away what don't we deserve everything we got Christ salvation all the riches in heavenly places, all the blessings in Christ. Grace gives it to you without you earning it at all. But God, I was reading this last night and I literally was weeping when I read those two words, but God. I mean, it just came to me like that. It was so powerful. But God, that would be a good book for somebody's testimony. But God, being rich in mercy your Lord is not only rich in grace he's rich in mercy I don't know if you realize this brothers and sisters we do not understand our God he is not like most of us have conceived him most of us in the back of our minds somewhere in there somewhere deep if you just peel the layers back there is an image of a God who is ready to pound you into the ground because of that thing that you did or that thought that you thought or that word that you uttered he is rich in mercy praise the Lord because why is he rich in mercy because why did he give you mercy because of his great love for you what kind of love does he have for you brother and sister a great love When did it start? Before creation. Here's the enemy. God's enemy. He is the accuser of the brethren. You're aware of this, right? Look what they did. They're following me. I'm talking about before you were Christian. They're following me. They are following the system that I head up. They are doing my works. They don't know you. They don't love you. They're living by my nature. And the Lord says, I'm giving them my mercy. And the enemy says, why? 
And the Lord says, because I love them. And the enemy says, well, they don't love you. And the Lord says, I'm sorry, it's too late. I've loved them before they were even born. I love them before they even breathe their first breath. I love them before creation. You have a God who loved you before creation and chose you in his son before creation. That's why he gives you his mercy. He is a great lover. He, in fact, is the greatest lover. And he's rich in grace and he's rich in mercy. And what a Lord. Don't think for a minute you're not unworthy. Not in the presence of this. I mean, I just want to read it again. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Praise the Lord. Even when we were dead. Even when we were dead. But what does Paul say in Romans? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were dead, He made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. What role did you and I have in that? His making us alive. See, in our view, He makes us alive individually. But in his view, he made us alive when Jesus Christ came out of that grave, all of us together. It's already happened. It just caught up to us. That day, that moment where we turned to him, it caught up to us. But it already happened in his view. There's great comfort in that because you know what it shows? It shows yet again, this is grace. Your first introduction to Jesus Christ was grace. But that's not all. We have been taught as Christians, many of us, I know I have, you're saved by grace, but you maintain your salvation by works. Now that puts me in a position where, okay, God loves me conditionally, but maybe not. Here is the gospel that is proclaimed to most of us. You're a sinner. God loves you. Loves you unconditionally. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how, how badly you blew it. He loves you. He doesn't hold it against you. Unconditional. Praise the Lord. I want to be a part of that. You become a Christian. Ah, you better watch it, brother. If you fall, if you mess up, if you miss the mark, God's not going to be happy with you. Well, wait a minute now. You just told me he was unconditional. But that's before you're saved. After you're saved, it's different. I mean, that's essentially the gospel we've heard. Let me make a point here. Absolutely. Let me make a point. He is the same before and after. Because in his view, you were in Christ before time. You will be in Christ after time. You are in Christ now. It doesn't change. It's all grace. And good works, which we will talk about in a minute, does not earn anything you cannot earn favor by anything you do well I didn't read my Bible last week doesn't matter I've been praying doesn't matter you can't earn God's grace you have it period good works you know what good works are they are an evidence that you 
have grace operating in you. They're an evidence. They don't earn anything. This morning, confession time for Frank Viola. Parenthesis. From the time I woke up this morning to the time I drove in this parking lot, I've not been having a good day. I have not felt close to the Lord. I did turn to Him in the morning. I didn't feel anything. I was like there was some kind of a thing, you know, here. And He's there. And I just, I have not had a good day. But you know something? He loves me just as much as He did yesterday. And the day before. And the day that I got saved. And the day when I was in rebellion against him and didn't know him. And you know what else? He likes me just the same too. And so I, I do not walk by my feelings. I walk by what is real. And brothers and sisters, I give that to you because if you do not ground your faith in what is real from the vantage point of God, Allah, Ephesians 1, you're going to have a tipsy-turvy treadmill relationship with God where all of it's going to be on your shoulders and quite honestly you are going to make mistakes and you're going to mess up and you're going to have terrible days and you're going to have good days on my best day he views me the same as he does on my worst day because my God is rich in mercy and you know what it was too late he already fell in love with me and chose me there's great comfort there I want you to lay hold of that brothers and sisters our God is not the God that we have been presented with. He is incredible in His love and mercy. Okay. By grace you have been saved, raised up with Him. Verse 6. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to say some things about this passage. In God's view and in God's reality, which is... <laughs> Which is the only reality that you should put your faith in. When Christ died, you died, and so did I. He euthanized us in His mercy. He took us out of our misery. Our, that old person we were is gone. Then He made us alive in that resurrection. But He did something else. When He ascended, He took us with Him. And if you remember in Ephesians 1, the greatest power of the universe ever demonstrated by your God was demonstrated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that resurrection, Christ kept ascending and he ascended over every power and principality, all dominion, all authority, and he has the first place. And he is seated at the right hand of God. He has already defeated death and that was his greatest enemy. Now, this is difficult for me to talk about because it has been made something so cheap and so common. It has been perverted, it has been corrupted, and it has lost its power. So bear with me here. But when Christ rose and triumphed, and when he ascended, and then when he was seated above all authority and all dominion, Brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters wherever they're found, he took you with him. And you are now in spirit, seated in that same place. 
above all power, all dominion, all authority. He turned it over to the church. Now, I grew up in a movement that majored in the power of God. And I met a lot of Christians that were drunk on God's power. That was the thing they chased. Okay? And I watched men and women get so drunk on God's power and so obsessed with the miraculous that, listen, they lost sight of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but they were trying to harness God to meet their own ends. And my conclusion is, if you or I trying to harness God for our own ends, we are dealing with the wrong God. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he's not a tame lion. He cannot be harnessed. But there's something else. The power of God, which is very real, has never ever been given to you or I as an individual Christian to wield. It has been given to her, the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ. And whenever I have seen men, it's usually men, on a few occasions it's been women, wielding God's power as an individual, I immediately see imminent destruction. And the pages of history are littered with this, brothers and sisters. The power of God on an individual will destroy them. It must be in the church. Let me make a few observations about Jesus Christ. When he was on this earth, I am impressed with the fact that he was not interested at all in becoming famous by his miraculous signs and wonders and healings. Have you ever noticed that in most cases, when he performed a miracle or healed someone, he told that person, don't tell anybody. There is a certain modesty in Jesus Christ when it comes to his power. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you realize this, but the reality is but this body of believers has the power of God available to you to accomplish the will of God in this earth. If I can put it to you this way, if I personally felt that it was the Lord's will for us to get on our faces and ask God to stop the moon in the orbit, I would do it, believing it would happen. Now, remember the first part of the sentence. If I believed it was God's will, I better show you a good reason why I thought it was God's will or else you have full permission to run through the door. And I would if someone asked you to do something like that without a good reason for it. But my point is this. There will come times in the life of the church, especially when she is penetrating the culture. You remember we've talked about exposing ourselves to this town. There will come times where there will be a struggle of power. There will be moments where the power of God will, should be called upon. We have that power as a church. 
Now, let me say this. God does not give his power to an organization. He gives it to a body of believers. We have that power available to us, but brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. It's so easy to corrupt this and pervert it and make it common. It's so easy to dilute it that my exhortation to you is let us be a people who are very careful stewards of these holy things. It is a holy thing to get on our faces and ask God to exercise our authority that we have as Christ in the earth, as an expression of Christ in the earth. It is a very powerful, holy thing and invoke God's power in a given situation. May we be broken vessels, humble vessels, that if the time comes where we will exercise that power as a church, we will do business with the Lord, we will step away from it, we will not talk about it, we certainly won't brag about it, and we will go on pursuing Jesus Christ. Because it is so easy to chase signs and wonders and power and lose him. I've watched this. Can anybody say amen to what I'm saying? If you don't understand what I'm saying, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you, I believe. But this is a serious thing. We have unbelievable power at our disposal as the body of Christ, not as an individual. All right, that's what I wanted to say about this. And by the way, I was warning you about the cautions of God's power when uh, I spoke on Ephesians 1. I don't know if you remember that, but I said next time I speak, of course, it happened to be a month later, so you may not remember, but that's very much on my heart. I believe that we will be put in positions in the future where we are going to get on our faces and do business with God. But let us remember to be faithful and careful stewards and not become obsessed or drunk on the power. Again, I was in a movement where I was taught, you have the authority of God, you have the authority of Jesus Christ, go out and do it, go out and destroy the devil. I saw so much destruction come out of that. And not only that, but I saw diluting of the real thing, where it wasn't real. And if you don't have the real thing, and you're being preached that it should be real, you know what happens? People start exaggerating. They start making up stories. Or maybe they may be a story, and then they start adding to it. So, please, hear, hear my words. Brothers and sisters, the power that we have is very real. Let us use it as good stewards for those times where God's eternal purpose is at stake. All right, I don't want to belabor that. Let's go on. There's a, there's a passage here that I'm just working my way toward that is, to me, the most beautiful statement in this whole chapter. All right. Paul is lifting their eyes to see what God has done in Christ and what is real. We are in heavenly places, and of course, as we know from chapter 1, we are seated in heavenly places, and all the blessings in Christ, all the riches of Christ are ours. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Praise the Lord. God saved me by His grace. You know, there's no human being that's smart enough to become a Christian. 
Did you know, David, that if you chose the Lord because you were smart, that you can boast about something? You can say, well, I was intelligent enough to choose the Lord. No. <laughs> See, this message is for you, I can tell. No, your eyes have been opened by grace. If you've come to him, if he has saved you, it's only by grace. And brothers and sisters, that salvation is maintained by grace. And anything that's good that comes out of you is grace. Jesus Christ is grace. And I'll tell you something else. Grace appears where sin abounds. I don't know if you realize this, but this is a principle in God. Grace appears and magnifies where sin abounds. You know why grace came into my life? Because sin was abounding. And grace came in your life because sin was abounding. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus Christ was walking on this earth, he was drawn to the darkest places and the darkest people? Why? Because where sin is, grace abounds. Jesus Christ is grace. Why did he not go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and give his grace to them? Do you know why? They didn't need it. Now you understand there's a subtle point in that. They didn't think they needed it. But he went to those who needed it. And he still goes to those who need it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Praise the Lord for that. Okay, now somebody in the room saying, okay, well, I'm just going to sin it up big so I have more grace. <laughs> you just need to read Romans 6 because Paul deals with that objection. I won't do it. I'll let him do it for you. Praise the Lord. It is the gift of God. Do you realize if you're given a gift, you can't earn it, you don't earn it? May we have our eyes open to see the marvel of God's grace in our life. I will tell you something. When you hear a Christian bragging, or you hear a Christian looking down their nose at another believer, or when they hear somebody fall into sin and they just throw their chest out, and, oh, oh, I cannot even understand how they can do that. <laughs> You are hearing a person that is blind to grace. And what typically happens is those people eventually end up falling into a pit that is worse than any person they pass judgment against. Boy, if I hear somebody falls, whew, Lord, don't let that be me. That could have been me. There's a passage in Titus, and by the way, this business about God's grace, if you really lay hold of it, it destroys any sense of self-righteousness, which is a religiously transmitted disease among Christians. And there, that's one of them. There's quite a few, but self-righteousness is contagious, and it'll destroy you. Jesus Christ does not like self-righteous people. If you're getting self-righteous, just know this, the Lord still loves you, but he don't like that. We're going to stop here and go to Titus. Titus 3. I read this many years ago. I was in college, and the Lord arrested me with it because I saw Paul just knocking the legs out of a self-righteous attitude. In fact, he was shooting at the kneecaps of a self-righteous spirit in this passage. Okay, now look at look at chapter 3 of Titus, 
verse 1. Now Paul is talking to his co-worker Titus, who's a, uh, a Christian worker ministering to churches. And he tells them, remind the saints to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to obey them, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And the reason for that, why be gentle? Why be patient? Why be long-suffering? For we also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Despite all of that, what we were on the basis, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us so richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, brothers and sisters, when you see grace and mercy, and the Lord's grace and mercy to you, and what you once were, you get a different view of people. And uh, the attitude of looking down at them is removed because you realize that you yourself, I myself, was deserving of judgment. Who then am I to judge or malign another person, another brother or sister in Christ especially? Today, I'm going to be thanking the Lord all day because of His grace and His mercy. It's a good thing to remember that. We can easily forget, you know, especially if it's been some time that we came to Him. But you know what? You live by grace every day. I'm sitting in this chair because of grace. You are here because of grace. We are together because of grace. We don't deserve any of this. Praise the Lord. What a Lord. Okay. Ah, I love this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, whom God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All right, let's take this one at a time. We are His workmanship. That word is poema in the Greek, and the word poem is translated from that. Workmanship in the Greek language means a work that has been crafted by a skilled craftsman. It's used to refer to a craftsman who is making a crown or a some type of work of art. The New Living Translation hits the ball out of the park. Masterpiece. Paul's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. You, the churches, are his masterpiece. I have a question. Our God created this entire universe. So all the planets, all the stars, everything that we see above us are his handiwork. Then everything on the earth is his handiwork. And then everything underneath the earth, the waters, are his handiwork. Right? I want us to just throw things out here. Let's just have a little, little conversation. If you've done any traveling at all, and maybe you haven't, but you've been around to see something beautiful in creation. 
I want you to just throw out what was the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen that God made. The Colorado Mountains. Breathtaking. Sunset in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Rainbow and the sun is just bright, shining, and it's still raining. Mm-hmm. Rainbow, or it's still raining. Awesome. Stars in the sky. The stars in the sky, okay. Glacier Lake. Where is that? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, like in Canada, okay. It's too early to say DD or Oh, that is so special. <laughs> that is so <laughs> special. <laughs> Well, that counts. She came from the hand of God. She wasn't created in a test tube laboratory. What else? What's the most beautiful thing you've seen? Actually, with me, it's just the sky with the, the clouds, uh-huh. and the sun behind it, and yeah. the rays kind of come out. Type of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I went to Israel, and Ooh. the Sea of Galilee was just real beautiful. It was just so peaceful there, and it was beautiful. I've never been there, but I've heard about it. I'm going to say when we went to Italy, Lake Garda was the prettiest for me. That was surreal. Well, this creation is awesome. But, you know, I am astounded that the Lord did not value any of those or esteem any of those or deem any of those as his masterpiece. His masterpiece is you. The body of Christ. The bride of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is in us. And he is the most beautiful thing that exists. We are the greatest thing that God has ever made. And I'm not talking about you as a human. I'm talking about the church. He didn't say masterpieces. He didn't say you are his masterpieces. You are his masterpiece. When Christ was walking on this earth, he had a masterpiece in his ribcage. We were in him. And we've come out. We are more beautiful than anything that Michelangelo has ever made. Da Vinci, Rembrandt, we are his masterpiece. Chiseled, sculpted, painted in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, you ought never, ever to feel unworthy in the presence of that statement. You are his masterpiece. You're a part of that bride. That's awesome. I mean, he has a view that is so high and so different than our earthly view. And so, once again, I say to you, get behind the eyes of your God and look through his eyes and understand who you are as the people of God, his masterpiece. And what is he doing by washing you, forgiving you, cleansing you, taking care of you? He's protecting his property. He's cherishing his masterpiece. An artist cherishes his masterpiece. And not only that, but here's where we will end. The very first mention of anything that you and I as Christians, that the church does, Because so far, we've just been showered. We're very inactive. In Ephesians 1, we're not doing anything. We're just receiving. And in the beginning of chapter 2, we're not doing anything because we're dead. 
And then He makes us alive and we're still receiving. We're, oh gosh, we're rising again from the dead with Him. We're exalted in the heavens with Him above everything else. All of this is by grace. And now we're His masterpiece. That wasn't your work. That was His work. And incidentally, before I get to this next point, the very first mention of something that the church has to do is mentioned in verse 10. Something called good works. I'm going to contradict Paul. Paul said we're saved by grace, not by works. That really isn't true. We are saved by works. Every person in this room would not be saved except if it were for works. And they're good works. They're the works of another. If you want to know what the works are that you're saved by, just list them in Ephesians 1, 20 at least. All the works that God did. It took tremendous work to save you and me, to rescue us. So we are saved by works. His work. And our salvation is maintained the same way. His work, not us. Don't forget that. Don't have in your head, saved by grace, maintained by my works. No, it's saved by his works, maintained by his works. <laughs> it's all his work. That's grace. That's Christ. Okay, now, what does the end of the passage say? We are his masterpiece. Remember, this is to the church, not an individual. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared and planned yourself. No, which your God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And that's a beautiful picture. The picture of simply walking in something that's already been prepared. A few things to keep in mind. You as an individual Christian do not bear the weight of good works. She, the church. The body of Christ bears the weight of those good works. She is the one that does those good works. And she does them as she stares in the face of her bridegroom. Good works are the natural, organic outflow of your life in Christ. I want you to see good works through the image of a vine tree and the branch. Jesus said himself when he was on the earth, I am the vine, I am the tree, you're the branch. You can do nothing apart from me. A branch does not have life of its own. Look at that fruit that comes off the branch, whatever the type of tree may be. That fruit did not exert any energy. That branch did not exert any energy to produce that fruit. It was the natural outflow of the life that was in the tree. All the branch does is it abides. It doesn't get fatigued. It doesn't exert itself. It doesn't strain. It's not feeling guilty. It doesn't have a sense of duty. It just abides. And the life produces the fruit. And the fruit falls off the tree. That's what good works are to the church. She, the church, the body of Christ, does good works so naturally that she's not even aware she's doing them. I'll give you an example. Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the, the sheep and the goats, right? 
Lord, uh, when did we visit you in prison? When did we see you sick and comfort you? When did we do that? And the Lord turns and says, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Notice that these people in the parable have no idea. They're not sitting there keeping score. Okay, how many good works did I do today? In this, five good works today. Okay, they're not keeping track. It's just natural. It's organic. How did Jesus Christ do good works? He was beholding the face of his father. He was living by the life of his father that indwelt him. And all of what he did came out of that engine, naturally. And brothers and sisters, it's the same way with the church. Good works have already been prepared. What are they? I have no idea. And it doesn't matter. You simply walk in them. They will come out of you just like a piece of fruit comes off the tree. It's part of your nature. And Paul talks about what those good works are in the rest of the letter. When you get to chapter 4, he specifies what those good works look like. But there's an engine driving it. And it's not guilt. It's not religious duty. It's not, well, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I better do this. It is as natural as breathing. But the weight of the good works is on the church. She bears it. She produces it. It comes out of the masterpiece. And not only that, but there's no boasting in the good works either. Because they come out of grace as well. So there's no reason to boast about the good works that she does. Do you realize that the church here has done good works? You probably aren't even aware of it. And that's good. I'm not even going to say what they are. Lest you get puffed up. But we walk in good works just like we walk. Walking is natural, right? Walking in good works is natural. It's part of your species as a Christian. And uh, we don't do them by ourselves as individuals. It comes out of the church. And when it comes off an individual, it comes in relationship to the church. We're, we're in relation to one another, so it just spontaneously flows out. There are good works that God has prepared for this church to do in this town. And maybe when we look back two, three, four years, we can say, oh, that's really good stuff the Lord did. Praise His name. That's His grace. Like you were talking about today, us being raised with Christ. Um, and I always think it's so weird, you know, like when they say we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, you know, it's just hard to imagine, you know, because like I'm right here, you know. Mm -hmm. like, how can I be up there? I'm down here, you know. And, and <laughs> you know, I'm like, where am I? And so, so anyways, I think how I've come to understand that, you know, is to understand that you know, I guess my army reality, my reality is my spiritual reality, yeah. and that's Amen. like not bound by space. That's and right, time. exactly. And so I there. That's right. Even though, like my body and everything here, my spiritually I am, I has have been in Christ, and I um, died with Him, and I don't know because it's a spirit. It's our spirit. Reconciled that. Um, Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Lisa. You know, Paul was in a prison chained to a Roman guard when he dictated this letter. You can read it from the beginning to the end. There is no smell 
no whiff of prison. He, in his spirit, knew where he was in the heavenlies with Christ, even though physically he was chained. Read Ephesians 1 in that light, and the brother is not, he's not tied to <laughs> the earth. He's in the past with Christ, before time. He goes into the future and the consummation of the ages. And that's true for every believer. The reality is, not only is he in us, but we're in him. Transcending time. I just noticed that I left out a verse. I did not comment on verse 7. And it's important that I do because I have something to say about it. So let me do that. He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 5, and then he lets us know this is by grace. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's verse 6, verse 7. In order that in the ages to come, he might show or display or exhibit. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this goes to the heart of God's eternal purpose. We have a God that desperately wants his son to be made visible. All that he is. That was the motivation for him creating life forms. He wanted eyes to see the beauty and the glory of his son. And so consequently here he's saying that in the ages to come, not just in this age, we, the church, the body of Christ, will be his trophies that exhibit the surpassing riches of the grace of Jesus Christ in the universe. It gets back to this thought that God wants to display who he is and make it visible. There's no thought here of punishment in the future for the believer. There's no hint of that at all. It's all that in the coming ages he may put on display you and me, the church, to show forth the insurpassable riches of his grace and his kindness to the universe. I think that's awesome. And when we get to uh, chapter 3... He talks about the making of Christ visible to principalities and powers, as well as in the ages to come. So we are his trophies, evidence of his grace and mercy and kindness. We got a lot of people that give God a bad rap, that make him to be this horrible, terrible, temperamental person, and yet... His whole burden is to display the riches of His grace and kindness. It's quite a contrast. That's Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. A real summary of it. In fact, I'm going to slip out of the room for a minute. And you all talk. React. Add. Okay? First off, praise the Lord. <laughs> like, uh, how awesome is that? This episode is brought to you by the Deeper Christian Life Network. The Deeper Christian Life Network is an online network designed for mentoring and connection among those who want to deepen their spiritual walk. 
The network includes exclusive masterclasses that you can take at your own pace and much more. The masterclasses are conference messages based on themes and or letters in the New Testament that cannot be accessed anywhere else. The network opens up for registration periodically throughout the year. Go to thedeeperchristianlife.com and check out samples and join the waitlist if you're interested.